after the saints left Nauvoo, the Relief Society was just suspended, basically, and didn't really reemerge until the early 1850s. Hello and welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. And in today's episode, we will be focusing on Chapter 23, One Harmonious Whole. And we're very excited today to have with us Jay Burton. He's an archivist with the Church History Library. Welcome, Jay. Thank you. So, Jay, in this chapter, so this is... 1865, and we meet a character who, well, she's a real person, but we meet someone who we're going to follow throughout the rest of Saints Volume 2. Her name is Susie Young. And Jay, can you tell us a little bit about Susie? Okay. She comes out of the scene in this chapter, and Susie is a young girl. She's living in the Lion House with the large young family, and we just get a little glimpse of her personality, kind of precocious, It will be fun for our listeners as we go throughout the episodes and the chapters to just get to know Susie a little bit better. And precocious is a great word (laughs) because she is precocious. She's energetic. She is a big personality, and it's Mm going to be fun to know her a little bit better throughout this book. Something that I appreciate about this scene, too, is just that Susie growing up in the Lion House, she has 30 siblings living in the home with her. And so you kind of have this picture of the reality of plural marriage. And I appreciated this quote in the book that Brigham Young and his wives, he said that if he ever had a trial on earth, like the trial of his faith, it was when Joseph Smith revealed the doctrine of plural marriage to him. But after he prayed unceasingly, he had to exercise faith, the Lord revealed the truth of it to him, and he just had this testimony of it, and he knew that it was ordained of God and that it's not of the world. And I just appreciated that. And so it's kind of fun to get to know Susie and then to see her throughout the book and just her connection with this. Another part of this chapter that I think is really fascinating and our listeners will want to know about is the reestablishment of Relief Society. There's a a bunch of organizations kind of coming together here, the School of the Prophets and the Sunday School Union. But can you tell us a little bit more about the reestablishment of Relief Society and kind of what led up to that? Yeah, so after the Saints left Nauvoo, the Relief Society was just suspended, basically, and didn't really reemerge until the, the early 1850s. And then you kind of have some sporadic, ad hoc reestablishment of local relief societies. We've talked in some other episodes about the Indian relief societies mm-hmm. in those in the early 1850s, how they organized to help out the local native people. Yeah, and then there was even some help with the Utah War, supplying for the Saints Army. But then you get to the end of the late 1860s, and Brigham calls out the women again. Says, let's, let's reestablish throughout the territory the Relief Society. And he commissions Eliza R. Snow to lead that charge. And Eliza is one of his plural wives. She also, as listeners might remember, probably do, from volume one, was one of the founding members of the Nauvoo Female Relief Society. And so what's her role as she goes to help reestablish Relief Society? That's a good question. So by this time, they're spread all over Utah, the, the settlements, and there are local wards. And so she's asked to go out to travel to wards, work with local leadership. And also she does some correspondence as well, where she'll counsel with the local leaders, help to set up the Relief Societies. And she really intentionally does this after the pattern of what they did in Nauvoo with the same kind of organization. Even the way they set up some of the minute books will look the same as the Nauvoo minute book. 
Jay, our listeners don't know this, but maybe you could tell us just a little about your work because you know about these minute books. The team that you work with, you've seen these, I don't know how many there are. There must be hundreds of them, these early minute books. Where are they now and how do we know this? Great question. I wish there were more, but we do have a good collection of the really early Release Society minute books. I was just reviewing an early one from Provo just this last week and came across a sermon that Eliza gave in 1869, I think it was, as she's going out to help establish the Relief Society in the Provo Second Ward. And she gives this beautiful sermon. And she starts by being really reticent about stepping into the spotlight and being the one to be the spokesperson for this. But she excels. And she's able to teach the women the things that Joseph taught in Nauvoo to the Relief Society sisters about organization, the types of work that they would do, and so on. What an incredible blessing it is that we have access to these minute books. And then we can see the sermon that you're talking about and other things just so we know what people said, what was going on. It's amazing. We link to a lot of these things from the footnotes from saints, but maybe you can just tell our listeners if they want to find online some of these kinds of records, where can they go? And if they want to find minute books in particular, what might they search for? So what you can do is you go to the church history catalog. It's awesome. And Jay's team is responsible in part for making those resources available. It's a great job. (laughs) I love that you gave the example of finding that minute book in Provo because it just shows that Eliza really was going to visit all these different groups and teaching them about how to establish relief societies. But here's a couple of things that I love about this story. So Brigham Young told her that he had a mission for her and she said, I shall endeavor to fulfill it. And she didn't even know what it was. (laughs) But that just tells you something about her willingness to serve. And She was so nervous. She said her heart just beat faster and faster because she felt this enormous assignment. But this quote, I think, can be so relevant today. The enemy is always pleased when we do not overcome our feelings of timidity and keep our tongues from speaking words of encouragement and determination, she said. When the diffidence is once broken through, we soon gain confidence. And so she's speaking to these women from example. You know, she was able to overcome this and do so much for the Relief Society. As with many of the chapters in Saints, there are different stories that we're following. And another difficult story that we're following in this chapter is what comes to be known as the Black Hawk War. To set this up just a little bit, let's listen to a quote from the book that explains some counsel that was given, and then let's talk about what led up to and what was the Black Hawk War. Aware of these problems, Brigham Young urged the saints to feed the Indians and treat them kindly. We are settled upon their lands, which materially interrupts their success in hunting, fishing, etc., he wrote one church leader. For these reasons, it behooves us to exercise toward them all possible kindness, liberty, patience, and forbearance. Although Brigham hoped to inspire greater compassion for the Indians, food was already scarce in some settlements, and few saints were eager to share their provisions. When settlers refused to share their food, the Utes often resorted to raiding cattle for sustenance. But can you help us understand what's going on here in the relations between saints, the settlers, and the Native American people? That quote really encapsulates the problem. 
the general policy coming from Brigham and the other leaders, you know, even from the beginning when they're, when they're first settling the valley is let's try to live peacefully, let's share resources, let's work together. And then there's also this angle of let's teach them how to farm and also teach the gospel among the Native Americans. But the reality on the ground for the settlers as they start to scatter throughout Utah is that scarce resources leads to competition for the scarce resources. And there's really, as Brigham is suggesting in that quote, there's a disruption of the normal patterns for the Indians who were there before. And so settlement is, is basically an encroachment into that. And as resources become scarce, you see the cycle of violence develop. It starts with the Indians would raid settlements for food, usually cattle. The settlers would then retaliate then there's a cycle of there's just loss of life on both sides and leads to the Walker War and then the Black Hawk War, which is mentioned in this chapter, in which there are atrocities perpetrated by both sides. Yeah, in the book, there's a scene that describes the murder of a Danish couple and a Swedish woman. There are witnesses. People see this happening, and that has to traumatize them. They've witnessed people literally being killed in front of them. And then there's a massacre in Circleville. Let's play a little clip here from the book and then maybe you can help us understand what led to this and what was the aftermath. Church members in a small, poorly fortified community called Circleville captured around 20 peaceful Paiutes whom they suspected to be spies for Black Hawk. The settlers bound the men and held them under guard in the local meeting house. The women and children, meanwhile, were placed in an empty cellar. When some of the Paiute men tried to escape, the settlers shot them and executed the remaining captives one by one, including the women and older children. This is just horrific. What led to this and what was the aftermath? I think, as I, as I said before, the cycle of violence just spiraled out of control to where, as it says, it's not even the Utes who, who are participating in the, in the battles it's some folks that are basically innocent, and the spirit of retaliation takes hold. What does Brigham Young have to say through all this? His message kind of throughout is we have got to calm it down. We've got to strive for peace. We can't react this way. But it is difficult, as I said before, on the ground when you're living through this experience to follow that counsel. That's what we saw. It, it makes me wonder, too, um, I remember in the case in, in a previous chapter, we learned about uh, an Indian by the name of Old Bishop that was murdered, and Brigham Young didn't even know about it. There was an effort to minimize or misdirect the information, and I have to sort of wonder, how much did he know? When did he know it? It is some comfort, to me at least, that his counsel was always, let's ratchet this back, and it's better to feed the Indians than to fight them. So how does this end? When does it end? Does it end? The Black Hawk conflict, the war, um, wraps up in about 1865. And sadly, this conflict is resolved following the pattern of Indian relations in the United States from the beginning. It's forced relocation, reservations, and separation of the settlers from the Native Americans. And we, we see that all through U.S. history of this pushing off their lands and being forced to relocate. Well, speaking of disruptions, there's <laughs> another 
climactic disruption happening, a technological revolution, and that's the railroad. The Transcontinental Railroad is making its way east and west, and it is about to change the lives of the settlers in Utah. Can you tell us more about the railroad and its impact on the saints in the Utah Territory? Yeah. Leading up to the Transcontinental uh, Railroad making the connection in northern Utah, Brigham and the saints, but Brigham was was ex- both excited and anxious about this possibility. The idea that you could move immigrants by rail was clearly better than any other transportation methods used up to now. And moving missionaries to and from the east. And then even, supplies has got to be yeah, just supplies. way easier yeah. on a train versus just hauling everything overland in a wagon. Yeah. So it becomes less expensive, less difficult. And so that part is really exciting. But at the same time, Brigham foresees that the reality is, is that's going to connect kind of the isolated West with where they left, the East. And that brings with it what they called the Gentiles and Gentile ways. And that was troubling, knowing that you'd have to face new challenges. He really is torn because on one hand, he does invest money into the railroad because he is excited about that prospect. And he mentions like the saints that are coming aren't going to have the same trials coming by handcart and wagon. But he says that the trials that the saints will have are the pride and the follies and pleasures of a sinful world. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was fascinating thought. Did the saints help build the railroad? Were there people involved or were they only building the spur from Ogden down to Salt Lake City? Actually, Brigham took a large contract with the Union Pacific, and they helped to build some of the rails and they helped to do the grading. Many men participated in the building of the railroad before it connected. Jay, so with the arrival of the railroad, or its impending arrival, and Brigham is greatly concerned, as Shaylin mentioned, he's concerned that the saints left the world, but now the world's coming to them. What is the reaction of the leadership of the church And what do they do to sort of combat this new worldly influence on the saints in the Utah area? Brigham and the other leaders carry out kind of a multi-pronged approach to dealing with this. As we talked about at the beginning, the Relief Society is reestablished and reinvigorated, and the women are encouraged to participate in, in home industries and other communitarian projects so that they can be self-sufficient and not have to rely on shops and merchandise from the East and money can stay in the valley and and be traded among the saints rather than leaving. And this same idea of cooperation and setting up cooperative institutions is built into a reinstitution of the School of the Prophets. So we read in volume one about the School of the Prophets, especially in connection with Kirtland and Joseph Smith. So how is the School of the Prophets different? Yeah, so in some ways it carries on the tradition of bringing together the brethren and they'll discuss doctrine and teach each other. But really at this time, there is a focus on cooperation and preparing the saints to be self-sufficient in the face of the railroad's arrival. What about the Sunday School Union? We read about that a little bit in this chapter also. What is the Sunday School Union and what is its effect? In some ways, it's along the same lines. It's an effort to unify the way that Sunday school is taught throughout the territory. And then also, as Brigham says later in the chapter, we need to prepare this generation to be able to battle the temptations that are going to come. 
I don't know about you, but when I've traveled with my family, we've been on vacation or something, and we go to church in some other location. And I just take it for granted, you know, sometimes because of their state conference or ours, you know, it might be like, oh, they're a week behind us on the lessons, or they're a week ahead of us, or, oh, look, we're on the same schedule, and we could be in another country. And we just take that for granted that as a church, we're all on the same page, but we can trace the roots of that effort to get us on the same page back to this Sunday school union, and we're going to have a standard set of curriculum. We're all going to work on things together, and that'll be directed by the brethren. It's just fascinating to me that that goes back to the railroad arriving in the territory and needing to unify. In this chapter, we also meet another prominent saint, and then we have to say goodbye to another prominent saint. So, Jay, can you tell us a little bit about those two people? Who are they? Yeah, so it's Heber and it's Heber. Heber J. Grant is a youngster in this time period. The chapter talks a little bit about his early life, how his father dies when he's very young, and his mother, Rachel Ivins, is not well off. And we get to see a kind of a budding relationship between Heber J. Grant and Brigham Young. I think some of that flowers in the course of this book, and we get to see that play out. The end of the chapter, we also read about the passing of Heber C. Kimball, kind of a tragic passing with a with a buggy accident. With a buggy accident, and we have to say goodbye. It must have been quite a shock because he was still very active and healthy, and so many members of the church, English immigrants in particular, knew him. And he was the face of the church to them. I'm sure it was a shock for them to see such a good man pass away. Jay, thank you so much for your time and sharing so many insights and your experiences about this chapter and the research that you've done. We appreciate that. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. And we encourage you to email us your thoughts and questions and suggestions. You can email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. Just another plug for Jay and the great work that his team does. You can go to catalog.churchofjesuschrist.org and you can see the Church History Library catalog. Search for records. If you have an ancestor or even your grandparents or the place that you grew up, you'd be surprised the amazing resources we have there. Digital recordings, video and audio, and of course, pictures of all these wonderful resources. So Be sure and check that out and join us again next time on the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks for listening.